0: Hello everybody, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, no matter what time of day you're listening to this. Welcome to Not So Secular, the place where we talk about how the world we live in is not as secular as we often think. We just choose to see it that way. My name is Mon Reyes, I'm a youth missionary here in the Philippines and I will be your host here today. On this episode, we will be talking about how God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. Wait, what? Alright, now before you accuse me of putting on a clickbaity title, I want to take some time to qualify what I mean when I say that God doesn't need us. Because I think that a lot of people, since Christianity have gotten so popular and so well-known, I think that a lot of people, they know Christianity from an outsider's perspective. They know Christianity from what pop culture says about it, from what social media says about it, what other people say about it. And so oftentimes what happens is that these people who haven't been taught in the faith in the right way tend to have a perception of God that is not aligned with who he reveals himself to be and who the church teaches him to be. And so a lot of us, what happens is that we we grow up with this idea of God that seems to be no more than just an insecure bully who demands attention or else. Or else what? Or else there will be punishment. Or else there is hell. And it kind of makes you think, right? It kind of makes you think about what's up with all of these commandments. Because if you think about it, when you think about church, there are several things that come into our minds. Where Especially here, living in a country like the Philippines, where a lot of people are Christians, a lot of people are Catholics. We may think of the Holy Mass. We may think of our worship gatherings, if you're not Catholic. You might think of small groups and discipleship. You have a leader, you have a pastor, you have someone who's looking after you. You might think of serving in ministry or taking part in charity or all of these things that are being done out of goodwill to help other people initiated by the church. We have all of these different ways that the church gets involved in society and that that further extends to stuff like the social teachings of the church. But for many people, I think there is one thing that stands out, and that is the rules. We think of the rules. We think of stuff like the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. We think of, if you've been reading your Bible, you think of something like Leviticus, where there are all of these things that the the people of that time, the priests of that time had to do. You think of the second half of Exodus, which is the less exciting half for most people because the first half is what people know. You know, Moses setting free the people of Israel from Egypt and um, dividing the the Red Sea so that they could pass through. It's the exciting part, and then the other half are... Mostly commandments. It's important too. It's important too. We think, of, we think of rules such as how we have to go to church on Sunday. We call it obligation. It's our Sunday obligation. Holy days of obligation are, are part of that category as well. And when we think of obligation, it's not really something that's attractive. It's not really something that, you know, I want to be obligated to do something. We don't say that. We don't speak in that way. At least not anymore. We think of things that we want to enjoy. We think of things that we want to do. What else? What else? There's, um, there's the command of confessing your sins to a priest. You have to do that at least once a year. You have to tell the priest in a private way, in, in a manner that is private to you, the two of you, what are the sins that you've committed? And ask for forgiveness from God through the priest. This is something that happens. It's a sacrament that we acknowledge. For those of you who are a bit older, if you have gone for a Catholic wedding, for those of you who are married, you may remember all of the requirements that it takes to have a Catholic. Wedding. Apart from the requirements that the government has, which is in itself quite a hassle to to put together, (laughs) you think of the certificates that you have to accomplish, you know, the baptismal, then the confirmation certificate that you have to get from your parish church, and the marriage bans that you. It would have to be announced that you are getting married to your parish, so that people know what's up. It it has to be done in the church if you want a Catholic wedding. You can't do it in a garden. You think you think of all of these rules, things that you have to consider right some of you here maybe who are younger or who have grown up experiencing this might think of your of your past being part of A Catholic school, joining a Catholic school, being enrolled in a Catholic school, where are the, there are these seemingly arbitrary rules that we have to follow, certain haircuts, and you don't, you're not allowed to mess with your uniform, wear different colored socks, and all of those things. It seems too uptight. It seems too discipline focused. And as kids, I know this was Part of my perspective when I was young, I just didn't get much of it. And I didn't want to follow much of it. And that affected the way I looked at church as a whole as well. It was too rigid. It was too full of commands, too full of rules. Some of us here might be aware that the church takes a stance on major social issues as well, such as divorce, abortion, contraception, and LGBT. The church has a say on these things. This church has a say on governance. The church has a say on the things that are happening around us, the things that are happening in society. If you were to take a more personal route, um, part of the things that we have to do is that we're we're asked to pray. We should pray to God on a regular basis. And so there are all of these rules that we need to be thinking about. There are all of these commands that we need to consider. And when it comes to rules, what often comes after the rules is the punishment. You think of what would happen if you don't obey those rules. You're reminded of your Catholic school days. You're reminded of all those times when you were required to do something and man, it just sucked. Or at least, we thought it sucked. And so we think of these things. Why do I have to pray? Why do I have to Obey. What's even the point of all this? I thought God was all-powerful. Does He need me to pray to Him? Does He need me to give Him attention? Does He need me to do all of these things for Him? Can't He just do it for Himself? There are some people who claim to be atheists or anti-church who don't even believe in the spiritual side of things and they talk about these rules these commands as if it's just a form of controlling controlling the people controlling the masses keeping the crowds in check they they talk about these things as if as if the church is just some organization that is put together by human beings to exert fear upon the people the fear of hell and the promise of heaven so that the people would fall in line you hear this from thinkers such as freud uh, Marx, and all of these other philosophers, all all these other scientists as well. We have people today who talk about these things as if it's all about control. But is it really? This is where we're coming from. This is where I am coming from. When I tell you the good news, the good news that God doesn't need you. I want to read a bit from the Catechism. This is the very first paragraph of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it's very insightful. It's something that is very important. It's very central to what we believe. It, it communicates that, and so let's read it. This is from CCC 1. It says, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, In a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into the unity of his family, the church. To accomplish this when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son as Redeemer and Savior. In His Son and through Him, He invites men to become, in the Holy Spirit, His adopted children and thus heirs of His blessed life. I want to focus on the first sentence. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in Himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make Him share in his own blessed life god doesn't need you and me to clarify i don't what i don't mean is this i don't mean that he doesn't care he cares very much so but when we're talking about the necessity of human beings in in terms of god with regard to god then we're not really that necessary to him because he in himself is full. When he created human beings, when he created people, us, when he created everything, ordered the world, he wasn't doing his he wasn't doing it because he was insecure, lonely, or bored even. It's not like he didn't have any friends, so he created ones of his own. God's not, you know, making up imaginary friends and voila, we're here. It doesn't work that way. God, in his fullness, chose. He decided to create others so that he could have others to share in his fullness. God doesn't need us. I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read from Genesis 2 and 3 today and these passages are very insightful it will help us it will help further further illuminate what we're talking about here what we're discussing here and so I want I want to start we're going to do it part by part but i want to start reading from genesis chapter 2 verses 4 to 9 i'll be reading from the new american bible revised edition it says this is the story of the heavens and the earth at their creation when the lord god made the earth and the heavens There was no field shrub on earth, and no grass of the field had sprouted. For the Lord God had sent no rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a stream was welling up out of the earth and watering the surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being." The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and placed there the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made grow every tree that was delightful to look at and good for food. With the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is one out of two accounts that we have of the creation story. The first one is found in chapter 1. Of Genesis. We've mentioned this. We've referenced this also in the previous episodes. So you could check that out as well. But notice how when God created human beings and when he created the garden, there wasn't just one tree that was significant there. There were two. When you think of the story of Adam and Eve, you think of the one tree, the one tree which, whose fruit they weren't supposed to eat from, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and bad. But oftentimes, we forget that there was this other tree that was important as well, and that is the tree of life. Right from the very beginning of Scripture, from the very beginning of creation, we are shown that human beings are given the freedom to choose. They could eat, freely eat from the tree of life, but they were asked not to eat from the tree of knowing good and bad. We also mentioned this in the previous episode, particularly about how we have been given the gift of free will. We have been given the gift of choosing, of deciding for ourselves. We have self-knowledge, self-consciousness. This is something that we have been endowed with. And part of the reason why this has been given to us is so that we could also have the capacity to love. Because the thing about love is that love exists in the context of choice. Love has to be chosen. If love is not chosen, then it is not love. If you're not free to choose love, then you are not free to love. The ability to choose to obey God was given to us. But along with that is the ability to choose to disobey Him. This is free will. We call the disobedience sin. And so right from the get-go, we see that we have at least two paths that we, we can choose either life or death good or bad. We have been given this gift and this in itself is a gift. God did not create robots. God did not create machines that he could just control. Uh, he could have done that. You know, if God really is the creator of everything, then he could have just imposed his will upon everyone without the problem of dealing with the, with the possibility of them choosing what is not right, choosing what is bad. Right? But that's not what he did. What he did is he, out of his goodness, he chose to give human beings free will because he wanted to make us in his image, in his likeness. He wanted to partner with us. God, in his sovereignty, in his power, sees that there is good not just in using people, but in partnering with people. And that's why he creates us in this. Way. This is something that we see right from the very beginning of the story. There is something about human beings that is different. And the thing about partnerships is that it's two-way. It has to be two-way. God is already holding up his side of the partnership. The question that remains is: are we? Let's continue reading. This is from verses 15 to 17 of chapter 2. It says, The Lord God then took the man and settled him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and care for it. The Lord God gave the man this order. You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you shall not eat. When you eat from it, you shall die. Notice how the you are free comes before the you shall not. When we think of the rules of the commands of the church, we often think of what you shouldn't do. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet. We often think of the thou shall nots. But when God spoke to Adam, he first gave him the order. The first order that he gave him is not a thou shall not, it's a thou shall. It's you are free. And that's just the thing about us people, right? We often focus too much on what we cannot do that we miss out on taking advantage of what we can do. It's it's easy to be bitter about that. It's easy to be resentful about that. There are plenty of times when I myself have been frustrated because of the things that I could not do. When I was younger, I was such I was in such a hurry to grow up. When I was in grade school, all I wanted to be was in high school because I thought that when I was in high school I would be freer to do things on my own. When I was in high school, all I wanted to be was in college, in university. Why? Because if, if I were to be in college, I would be much freer. I, I, would be, I would be able to do things that I'm not able to do, at least during that time. And when I got into college, guess what? What I wanted to do was to graduate from college. I wanted to get my own work, get my own money, get my own source of income. During that time, I thought that by then, I would be more free. We're we're always looking forward. We're always looking to these other things that we cannot do. And when we do that, the, the joy of what is in front of us is often taken. It's often stolen from us. That's just something to think about. Let's continue reading. From verse 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suited to him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground and all the wild animals and all the birds of the air and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each living creature when was then its name. The man gave names to all the tame animals, the, all the birds of the air, and all the wild animals. But none proved to be a helper suited to the man. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman. When he brought her to the man, the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. The man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. I love how Adam is reacting to the first time that he's seeing Eve. It's just, he's so amazed. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman. I wonder if the reason why that is is because when he first saw Eve, all he could say is, whoa, man. (laughs) That was a bad joke, but... (laughs) But it's just wonderful. You see, you see that man and woman were created for one another. Man, woman was created to be on the man's side, right? It's, it's very beautiful the way that the ideal state, the state of being in the garden, is being portrayed in these passages. It shows us the oneness between God and man because God and man are freely able to interact with each other, freely able to be with each other. This is the state that we long to be in when we enter into his presence before the Blessed Sacrament, when we receive the Eucharist most especially. This is something that we, that we embody here now today. We wanna, we wanna have a taste of Eden. That is part of what happens when we go to Mass. Alongside that, we are shown the oneness between man and woman. And this is also very beautiful. It's described as, as they were both naked, but they did not have shame. There was no fear of being vulnerable. There was no fear of being taken advantage of. They were both naked. They could fully see each other and they had no shame. Oftentimes nowadays, we may be fully clothed on the outside, but oftentimes emotionally, spiritually, we're afraid to get naked. We're afraid to bear our all. We're afraid to let others see what we really think, what we're really like, what we really, how we really look at the world, the things that we would do. We're, we're we're more afraid. Why? Because we're afraid of the judgment of others. Because we're afraid of what other people would say. We're afraid that when we bear ourselves open, we could be taken advantage of. That someone might use that vulnerability at our expense for their own gain. And that is part of what happened during the fall. When the fall happened, we began to be afraid. We began to be more self-conscious. We began to become more protective because we realized our capacity for bad. We realized our capacity to hurt others. And in extension to that, that we could be hurt by others. That is why in church, we, we recommend, we encourage people to get involved, to get to know Who's there and to join small groups and get to know people there, form good friendships and have people around you with whom you could be vulnerable to, with whom you could be open to without that fear, without that shame, so that you could fully receive as well the kind of love that God wants to give through them. Trusting is one form of being vulnerable because when we trust, when we open ourselves to others, when we love even, we allow the possibility of getting hurt by that person. Think about it. If you didn't care, if it didn't matter to you, if you were just apathetic, then it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference what that person does. It doesn't make a difference what that person says. It doesn't make a difference what that person thinks. But once we start loving, once we start trusting the people around us, we open ourselves to getting hurt by them. Their opinions suddenly matter. Their thoughts suddenly matter. Their values suddenly matter. And that's why a lot of people have difficulty trusting. That is part of the reason why a lot of people have difficulty committing. Because deep inside, they know that it's a big deal. They know that it matters when you do that. And so being able to trust someone, being able to trust God is a very courageous thing to do. It's a very brave thing to do. And of course, we must be prudent about it. We must be wise about it. Don't just go around bearing yourself to everyone and anyone that you know. Of course, you'll be taken advantage in that way because, again, we live in a broken world with broken people and some people do do that. But there, to open yourself up, dare to be vulnerable, dare to allow yourself to receive. Because oftentimes, the same walls that we put up to keep us from getting hurt are also the same walls that keep us from receiving love. I want to read again from the Catechism. This is from paragraph 356 and 357. It says, Of all visible creatures, only man is able to know and love his Creator. He is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. And he alone is called to share by knowledge and love in God's own life. It was for this end that he was created, and this is the fundamental reason for his dignity. Being in the image of God, the human individual possesses the dignity of a person who is not just something but someone. He is capable of self-knowledge, of self-possession, and of freely giving himself and entering into communion with other persons. And he is called by grace to a covenant with his creator to offer him a response of faith and love that no other creature can give in his stead. If you want to learn more about that last part, we have an episode called, Where Does Your Worth Come From? If you haven't listened to that yet, you can go ahead and check it out. Let's continue reading from chapter 3 of Genesis. First verse says, Now the snake was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He asked the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now we're introduced to a new character, the serpent, the snake. We're not told where the snake comes from. We're not told what the snake is, who the snake is. Of course, this is revealed later on that this has connections to the enemy. But we are shown that the snake asks a question. That's how he begins. And what does he ask? He says, Did God really say... Did God really say that this was bad for you? Did God really say that you shouldn't do this? Did God really say that uh, this is what's appropriate and this is what it's not? Notice how when the enemy speaks, the way he does it is by asking questions, by planting seeds of doubt in what God has said and in who he is. Questions are not bad. Questions are good. Questions help us learn more about what we believe in. Help us, it it helps us explore more than what we acknowledge when we ask something. But, but this type of questioning that the snake does is not, it's not a question that is seeking to learn about something. It's a question that's seeking to tear apart something that was already revealed. It's a question that seeks to, to plant doubt within the relationship that that human beings have with each other and with God. And this is something that we see unfold going forward. It says, verses 2 to 5, it says, The woman answered the snake, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it or else you will die. But the snake said to the woman, You certainly will not die. God knows well that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know good and evil. The temptation of the serpent is that Adam and Eve would become like gods. And here's what's tragic about that story. They were tempted, but they forgot that they already were like God. The first chapter tells us that human beings, male and female, they were created in the image and likeness of God. That is what they failed to see. That is what they fail to remember. They were trying to achieve something that was meant to be good, that was freely being given to them. But the way they try to achieve it is twisted, is wrong, it's immoral. And that is a very real tendency that we have, don't we? When we're too consumed with what we think we deserve, we fail to appreciate what we've been freely given. God wants to give us good things. The good that we want, oftentimes, God also wants to give it to us. But what he wants to give to us is the pure version of that good. You could imagine the classic scene, you know, when someone is being interviewed, like when a snatcher for example uh, was caught by the police, was caught red-handed and he, he was being asked, right? He's being asked, "Why did you do this?" and what you would hear a lot of the time was something that goes along the lines of, "Well, I only did this because I wanted to provide for my family." Kaya ako lang naman nagwato kasi gusto yung pamilya ko, gusto yung mga anak And it kind of makes you think, is feeding your family, is providing for your family a bad thing? No, of course not. But the way we choose to acquire these good things oftentimes become distorted because of the false beliefs that we have. Because of the false idea that we have of God, of each other, and of the world. It just doesn't work. It's like a student being... A student preparing for an exam. You know, uh, months ago, the teacher already said, the professor already said that we're going to have our midterms during this date. Better prepare for it. This is the coverage, that, 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 that. And then the student, you know, he prepares for it, all of these things. But when he is there, when he is taking the exam, he suddenly forgets the answer to one of the questions that is being asked. And, you know, this student suddenly looks to his left. Looks to his right, sees the student sitting next to him, and then he sees. He sees <laughs> He sees what the other student is answering, what the other student is writing on his test paper. Now, question, that is a temptation for cheating, right? But here's the question, why would he want to cheat in the first place? He would want to cheat because he wants to pass. Is passing the exams a bad thing? No, definitely not. You take exams so that you could pass it. You take courses, you take subjects so that you could pass it, hopefully. But but the passing is good. What he wants to achieve is good. But how does he how does he try to acquire that good? It matters as well. There might be some good things in your life that God wants to give you, things that you've been praying for, things that you want, things that you've been aspiring, but it matters. Again, it matters how you achieve the good, how you acquire the good. Are you going to do it in the way that God wants to invite you to, in a way that will be more fruitful for you and for the people around you, or in a way that costs you unnecessarily, that costs you pain and harm? or costs others, for that matter. It matters how we pursue the good, that we identify the good, but how we pursue the good matters as well. Too many of us, I think, especially now, we, we have a hunger, we have a passion for what is good, we want to do something for people, we want to help them out, we want to we wanna demand justice where it needs to be demanded, but wait, 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 all of that is good, all of that is good, But, we need to be prudent. We need to be wise in how we approach these things. We need to also do it in the right way. Let's continue reading. In verses 6 to 13, it says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. When they heard the sound of the Lord walking about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I had forbidden you to eat? The man replied, The woman whom you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, so I ate it. The Lord God then asked the woman, What is this you have done? The woman answered, The snake tricked me, so I ate it. This is where the fall begins. This is where sin enters in. Shame enters in. Fear enters in. They became self-conscious. They were thrown out of the ideal state. And notice how they were already thrown out of the ideal state before they even left the garden. They started hiding from each other. That naked without shame set up was no more. It was no more. They started hiding from each other because they couldn't trust each other now. Because they knew that they could do wrong. They knew that they could betray their words, God's words. How much more could they betray each other? They started hiding from each other. They started hiding from God. They realized their own vulnerability and thought that they had to protect themselves. So they started hiding from God, which was absurd. I mean, think about it. You are hiding from the creator of the universe. And where are you hiding? You are hiding within his creation. It just doesn't make sense, right? It's quite funny, too, if you think about it. So God enters in, right? Enters in, and then he looks for the people. He even asks the question, where are you? I'm sure... I am certain that God knows where those two were hiding, but he asked the question anyway. And there's a reason to that. The reason is that even though he knows, he still wants to invite us to come forward out of our own will. Out of He still respects us in that way. Where are you? He asks. And so the man started hiding. The man and the woman started hiding. And then the man, what did he do when God asked? He raised his hand and he said, here I am. Like, what what even is the point of hiding if you would show yourself? And so God asks him, what have you done? Why are you hiding? No, before he asks, what have you done? He He asks, why are you hiding? And the man says, I'm hiding because I am ashamed, because I am naked. Who told you that you were naked? God asks. And the man says, The woman! And so for thousands of years, men have been blaming women for stuff that they did. <laughs> Just kidding aside, kidding aside. But but it's it's very... Man, it's very telling of, of the state that we're in. It's all about blame shifting. Who told you? The, the woman. What does the woman say? Uh. Well, before we get to the, what the woman said, the man says, The woman, you placed her here. So... Adam even blames God for placing the woman who tempted him. Well, it was it was the serpent who tempted them. But you see this blame shifting that's happening, it's it's absurd, it's crazy. And what does the woman do? The woman starts blaming as well, blames the serpent. And that's the thing. Blame, 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 blame. It's the we're not going to progress forward if we keep on playing the blame game. That is why, that's part of the reason why we have the Sacrament of Reconciliation. That is part of the reason why we are constantly encouraged to look within ourselves, to examine our conscience, because it has to begin with us. If everything is always somebody else's fault, then nothing will change. Nothing will change. The cycle has to break with us. It has to stop with us. And so we see this separation growing, this separation from God. We see this separation from each other as well. But I want to focus on the separation with God first. Because if you if you think about heaven in terms of in terms of the images that we're being given, for example, here in the Eden story, there is more to it than that, but I want to begin here at least. If we think about heaven in terms of the ideal state, then in the Garden of Eden, the ideal state is when man and wo- and man woman and god are together and are one that ideal state was broken when sin entered in and they started hiding from each other or at least the people started hiding from god and so there was this separation that was created because of sin and hell going to the other extreme just so we could understand it better hell is the other side of the spectrum brought to its extreme. Hell is separation from God. The Catechism, paragraph 1033, says, The state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. Hell is not an arbitrary punishment from God. It's a consequence that is chosen by us. It's not, it doesn't work as if, you know, you do good things, you do bad things. If you get enough points, you get to the good place. If you don't get enough points, you get to the bad place. It's not like the good place, the show. It's not like that. It wasn't meant to be like that. Because hell is not something that God wanted. It's not a torture chamber. I think what makes it difficult for us to understand it is all of these modern conceptions of hell that we have. And there is a purpose to that. There is a point where where these this idea of hell that we have is what we have right now. There is a reason why it has developed in that way. But but let's go back to the basics for a moment here. Hell is is not a torture chamber. It's not a place where the demons hold whips and they whip you until you're tired. It's not like that. Hell is is separation from God brought to its fullest extent. In the Catechism paragraph 1035, it says, The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he he was created and for which he longs. Again, God wants us to be united with him. God wants us to be in union with him. But the way he does that is that he invites us to respond in his love, with love as well. And when we decide to do the opposite, he honors that. When we decide to separate ourselves from him, he honors that. And that decision maxed out, what that looks like, is hell. There is so much more to be said about this. Maybe we can dedicate a separate episode for the topic of hell in particular, but at least its I think it's helpful to start understanding these things. There's this great C.S. Lewis quote that I love. He wrote this in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. We are free to choose our actions. But we're not free. To choose the consequences. God loves us enough to give us that freedom. And so we need to be responsible for it. And so with all of these things that we're talking about, where does the where do the commandments fit in? We're gonna get to that. But first let's talk about about the consequences. We are told in the next verses about the consequences, the pain of childbearing for the woman, this wounded relationship between man and woman. Um, when God starts talking to the man Adam, he talks about the difficulty of work, about how the ground will the ground, about how the ground will be difficult to work with, and then it gets toward their expulsion from the garden. They were kept out of Eden, out of the tree, out of access from the tree of life, because because they were no longer properly dispensed for it the punishment is all directed toward the snake. These are the consequences for the man and the woman. But the punishment, it's not directed to Adam and Eve. It's directed toward the snake. And this is something that we see in verses 14 and 15. Let's read. It says, Then the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all the animals, tame or wild. On your belly you shall crawl, and the dust, You shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. They will strike at your head while you strike at their heel. It talks about the eventual defeat of the enemy through the hands of the seed of the woman. Does that sound familiar in any way? Now, let's think about it one more. Let's reflect on the main idea of this episode once more. God doesn't need you. And so, if us listening and obeying and partnering with God is not for Him because He doesn't need it, then who do you think is it for? And yes, the answer is, it's for you. It's for us. It's for you and me. God doesn't need our prayers. But when we pray, it helps us. God doesn't need our charity. He doesn't need our our giving. But when we do give and when we do love others, it helps us grow more into His image. It helps us get to know Him more. Be closer to Him who is the source of life we live better lives when we obey god's commands when during the fall this is this is this illustrates the state that we are in right now sin entered in shame entered in fear entered in all of those things but part of that is that death entered in as well what kind of death spiritual death we were separated from god relational death we are being separated from others And then there's physical death. And we all know what that's like. We all know what it's like to lose someone that we care about. We all know what it's like to grieve and to mourn and to have to suffer that end. Seeing the people that we love suffer that end. And so this fall continues to be shown to us how it expanded further and further to the different peoples and how it has moved from an individual level to a societal level to a people level to a humanity level all the way to Genesis chapter 11 and what God does is he he starts to call people once again what he does is he establishes a partnership with a small group of people the people of Abraham of Israel He starts calling them, partnering with them, showing them who he is so that they could then show everyone else, all the nations, who he is, his character, his goodness, and how life can be accessible through him in his presence. In the Catechism, paragraph 410, it says, After his fall, man was not abandoned by God. On the contrary, God calls him and in a mysterious way heralds the coming victory over evil and his restoration from his fall. This passage in Genesis is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first announcement of the Messiah and Redeemer, of a battle between the serpent and the woman, and of the final victory of a descendant of hers. Jesus enters into the picture later on and fulfills what Israel was called for, what the people of God was called for. And he calls these different people and he sends them out so that, so that the church going forward could continue to represent him to all the nations while we're waiting for his eventual coming back, for his eventual return, for, his eventual, for the eventual resurrection of the body where everything will be set right and everything will be put to justice. Everyone will be put to justice. Here's the thing. I mentioned that it's good news. It's good news. God doesn't need you. Here's the good news. God chooses you anyway. That's the definitive good news. That Jesus, by what he did for us on the cross, he didn't have to do that because he didn't need to do that. He didn't need to be with us. But because he loves us, he chose to bear the suffering. He chose to sacrifice himself just so he could be united with us once again so that we could be given a new way even when we were lost, a new way to be reinvited back to his family, a new way to follow in his footsteps, to know him once again and to be with him, to go back to that ideal state of being with him fully so that from there, we could live out what it is truly that we were called for, that we were created for. God's commands are not for Him. It's for you. And these commands are always ordered toward love and communion with each other and with Him. Not on our terms, but on His terms. That as we follow these commands, we begin to know and see what love is truly like. And where better to learn what love is like than from the one who is love himself? As we draw this to an end, I want to read to you one final passage. This is what Jesus tells his apostles during during the Last Supper account in John's Gospel. And what I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to what he says about remaining in him. That's something that will be repeated over And over, i.e., being one with Him. That's something we're talking about. Being in the presence of God, fully being united with Him. Pay attention to what He says about being thrown into the fire, about keeping His command, and what all of this means when we put it together. I want to close by reading to you from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and every one that does he prunes so that it bears more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father loves me, so I also love you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment. Love one another as I love you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have told you everything I have heard from my father. It was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you, love one another. Thank you very much for tuning in on today's episode. I hope this was helpful for you. The links to my social media are on the description. Let's get in touch. You may communicate with me follow me on Instagram and Twitter let me know if you have some ideas or or some topics maybe that you would like for us to discuss here at Not So Secular in the future and um, that's it for today thank you very much for being here and I'll see you next week bye